You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It was a big turning point this week as the Pentagon announced an about-face on the closure of the Red Hill underground fuel tanks. It was a win for the Board of Water Supply uh, Chief Engineer Ernie Lau, as well as the Sierra Club, who have long advocated for protecting valuable water resources. But there would be little time to savor the monumental decision before regular testing would reveal a change in our water, potentially affecting urban Honolulu users. A drier-than-normal rainy season is producing higher levels of chloride, indicating the supply in Honolulu could be getting saltier. Ernie Lau explains the reduced draw from the aquifer shafts and less rain is what's behind it. If we pump too hard, we could also have challenges that the water could start to get saltier. And we measure that by measuring the chloride level in the water itself. What we have are some large pumping stations that are now having to take up a heavier part of the load to make up what was lost because Halava shaft remains shut down because of the Red Hill contamination issue. We saw at one of the wells, in particular one of our wells that are, is over 100 years old, called the Baratania Pump Station. Right here at my offices on Baratania Street, nine artesian wells, and they both pump into the low service system of the Honolulu and the high service system. And what we saw in a two week period, the chloride levels actually doubled. And that gave us a lot of concern that we have to reduce the amount that we're pumping from the site to preserve the quality of the water in the underground aquifer for our community. So because of that, we're relying on other wells to take up to the slack there or the load that we have to cut back on Baratania with halava shaft also off, which is about 20% of our supply. And we see what's happening with the weather, and it's kind of been really dry for the last few months. Like we had good rain in, in December, and actually it came in, I think, the corner low storms. January wasn't too bad. Then February was really dry, and maybe 51% of normal for the month of February. So we're concerned that as we get into the summer months, it will only get worse. And water demand is very connected or related to weather conditions because with hot, dry summers, that's when we experience the highest water demands on our system. A lot of it is outside irrigation use because there's not enough rainfall to keep the grass green and keep the landscape going. So that's the reason for the voluntary 10% reduction from our customers, in particular in Honolulu and also the Halava area. Uh, but also generally it's good practice, it's a good idea for all of our customers island-wide also to try to reduce their water usage at, at about 10%. So we're far from being out of the woods yet. The military is taking steps to restore clean water to those neighborhoods, but it is all putting a strain on things. Right. Catherine, you know, the, we still have three wells that are shut down, and we can't safely turn them back on because we do not want to introduce fuel-contaminated water into our water system and much more larger water system serving over 400,000 people all the way out to Hawaii Kai from Halaba to Hawaii Kai and also a smaller system serving another 20,000 people. So the only way we can prevent that because we know the aquifer below the fuel tanks and near the fuel tanks are basically the aquifer is contaminated with fuel at various levels. And we know that there is heavy contamination a half mile away from the fuel tanks at their Navy's Red Hill shaft drinking water source, which is right now trying to flush it out to uh, gather their fuel from the aquifer and flush it, uh, treat it, and then dispose of it in Hanava Stream. You know, this has been quite a week, the decision by the Navy to permanently shut down. I'm sure you haven't, haven't really had time to you know, be in the moment because now you're dealing with this. Exactly. The stress levels still remain very high because now we're having to deal with the collateral effects of the Red Hill fuel facility, its impact on the water resources. And and because they're now in a supply shortage condition and and one of our largest water systems and also a smaller system at Aya Lava. The news was welcome. I mean, it was a pleasant surprise. It's totally unexpected. And I think it's an important first step that the head of the Department of Defense, Secretary Austin, issued that memo to his staff. But it's only the first step, important first step, of course. And I appreciate Secretary Austin's decision to shut down, to defuel and shut down permanently the Red Hill facility. 
but still we have to get there. And it's going to be very important that we all stay on top of this to see that the Navy proceeds as quickly as they can safely to defuel the facility I and mean, to address the contamination in the aquifer. When you first heard the news, I don't know, did you have to pinch yourself? Or, I mean, I just imagine you were doing cartwheels. Uh, I, I, no, it's like I went through this, uh, these stages of emotion. First was disbelief, joy, and then cautious optimism. Because uh, when I read that memo a little closer, you know, it gives them to the end of May to come up with a plan on defueling the facility. And then at some point when it's deemed safe, they have a maybe a 12-month period to defuel the facility. So exactly what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of timeline here? And that's kind of the question I, I still have that's not real clear to me. So the important thing to remember right now, at this very moment, there's probably 180 million gallons of diesel and jet stored only 100 feet above our important drinking water aquifer there. And it's an 80-year-old facility that is having problems. So the longer the fuel remains there, it's a real danger to our, our resource, a danger that it might be damaged even more so. You may still have some sleepless nights ahead. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Kathleen, I wake up thinking about things in the middle of the night. Uh, and I, I think everybody needs to understand that there's still many steps needs to be taken to get through this situation. And then the thing that's going to be left behind is a contaminated aquifer. The extent of the contamination is still unknown. And then how do you clean it up if it's even possible? Well, Ernie Lau, I mean, I think uh, uh, people are standing behind you, you know, with the message that you were trying to convey years ago about this, the risk that we were um, dealing with here. Uh, I, I'm hearing that there's bumper stickers out there with your name on it. <laughs> Catherine, please, people don't do that. <laughs> it, it, it's scary and embarrassing. That's one person, and, and this effort is, you know, it's taken everybody to get to this place, so everybody should take credit for this and not just me. But you must be at least a little gratified that you've got everybody's attention now. Uh, you watch, you know, different levels of government stand behind you solidly, uh, and, uh, you know, you care very much about the water, and, and for a good reason. But now everybody sees the light, I guess. I'm very happy that we we're at this point, and it happened so quickly. You know, part of me is regretful we didn't get to this place earlier, that the situation could have been actually prevented. Prevention is always better than reacting and having to respond to disaster. But I'm very grateful to the community, to the Kanakamaoli, to the government officials at all levels, city, state, and congressional level. And the work still, there's still a lot of work to be done. So I really appreciate everybody continuing to put shoulder to the wheel on this until it's actually, the field facility is emptied out and it's shut down permanently and the efforts are well underway to clean up the aquifer. Well, I know the Sierra Club is still real cautious about putting the pause on the contested case hearing. You know, they want documents turned over. So it's not quite over yet. Uh, no, still got many miles to go, Catherine. It's a marathon. Yes, and I can't help think of that line from the Robert, Robert Frost poem, Miles to Go Before I Sleep. That was Ernie Lau, Honolulu Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer. He spoke with us about the need to issue a call for water conservation now and ask that residents, particularly of the Halava and Iaea areas, reduce usage by 10%. The lack of rain and the emergency response to the Red Hill crisis is triggering higher levels of chloride in the water in the Honolulu area, which could mean we could be in for saltier water and even more restrictions as we get into the hotter, drier summer months. You know, we've been following the story of the Red Hill fuel storage uh, tank farm and following Wednesday's conversation with Lynn Borner-Nakim, the daughter of one of the original engineers on the project, we got this email on our talkback line. I heard the story this morning and thought about this idea. Do you think that a state or federal agency might be interested in converting the Red Hill fuel storage tanks into dry storage? 
It'd be possible to construct structures to shore up the walls against the pressure of the surrounding rock, which would double as flooring joists for a multi-story underground storage system. They can be serviced by freight elevators. Might need to increase the size of the passageway servicing each tank or storage unit to allow containers to be easily moved into the tank spaces. There's a lot of well-protected room down there. Would be good to put them to good use. Aloha, Dean Shinsui. Hey, thanks for the feedback. Uh, you can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line and record something, 792-8217. Lucible Beats Reality Check turns our attention to turmoil at the University of Hawaii's Engineering Department. Reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us with the story. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your story uh, caught my eye because it involves the, the uh, engineering uh, college dean there, uh, uh, Brenda Morioka, who many people are familiar with. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when um, we were first sent that tip in February, I think early February, um, it was kind of on the back burner for me because I'm also covering the ledge until um, another story I was working on. I um, attended the Manoa Faculty Senate, and this is when this um, group of engineering faculty leadership presented this 73-page um, resolution and survey basically stating they have no confidence in his um, leadership. So it, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, uh, you know, what uh, what was the vote? Uh, the vote basically was um, out of, uh, it was 30, 39 to 6 um, out of 54 faculty. Um, and nine people were abstained or not, or didn't vote at all. Um, but that's basically the majority of the faculty um, raising serious concerns. Um, some were alleging that he uh, created this toxic work environment and um, had poor leadership skills. I mean, it's interesting because he has worked in a number of high-profile high jobs. He worked in the Lingle administration as the transportation director. He was with mm -hmm. Hart and then also uh, Hawaiian Electric. Yeah, he did a, a number of things, too. Um, and so even, um, you know, when he got on, some of the faculty have told me when he was hired in 2019, um, they were a little bit concerned, but they were trying to keep an open mind. But because of um, fiscal um, matters that they've been bringing up for past couple of years, some of these um, these fiscal matters weren't being addressed under his leadership, and um, they started raising concerns in 2020 and 2021, but nothing was getting done. So then they ended up um, doing the survey and um, hoping to get some type of resolution from either the dean or even the Uish Manoa provost. And so uh, this came up before the faculty senate. Uh, have they taken a position on it yet? Uh, no, not yet. Um, but what the engineering faculty have said, um, right now it's still in the works. And also um, UH Manoa Provost um, has told me that they're also working on a resolution. And even um, uh, Dean Brennan, he's saying he's working on an action plan with the, um, f uh, the faculty to, in hopes to address these, um, these issues. So, so they did flag it to uh, Provost Bruno then at the beginning of the year, right? Yeah, they actually met in the course of um, between January and now about five times. And um, in a couple of weeks, um, the provost has told me that you're going to be working with um, or meeting with the faculty again. And yeah, about a couple of weeks. And so um, uh, were you able to talk to uh, um, Morioka? What did you say? I I did. Um, he said, like, these concerns are valid, um, but he also said that he inherited these um, these issues beforehand. And he also told me that, you know, he's been open to communication. He's been trying to communicate with the faculty, but some of the faculty said that communication hasn't been open for them. And so uh, what happens now? So we wait to see if the faculty Senate uh, takes a position on this? Um, I'm actually waiting to see what um, the next steps for Michael Bruno is because the faculty um, faculty leadership said they actually want to take it to the HR department at UH Manoa. Yeah, I'm not sure what that means or, or, or uh, uh, how that all works. 
That's something I'm going to follow up soon because um, I was also asking them if they were going to bring it to the Board of Regents or I'm not too sure if they're going to bring it to the legislature. That's kind of something I have to follow up with um, after they meet with Michael Bruno. And so at that faculty senate meeting, I mean, did uh, any of the professors testify about what specifically um, they were upset with? Uh, they were mostly upset with um, having these fiscal matters and getting money into their account for like um, their classes and ordering supplies for the research projects. That's one of the things that has been created or um, raised during the faculty senate. And um, one thing that I thought was really interesting to note is that um, both the both the faculty and even um, uh, the provost and the dean said they want to get this issue resolved um, in order to help their students. The students are their main concerns. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, yeah, the attention is uh, on that particular department. I know it was tapped, I think, uh, by the Navy to look into solutions for uh, the Red Hill uh, mm -hmm. facility. So um, anyway, be curious to see how this all gets resolved. Uh, but all right, well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've been talking with reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's uh, reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the William S. Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii, offering an evening part-time JD program for working professionals. Information and application at law.hawaii.edu. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew Fox, author of Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about bringing spirituality alive in culture and religion. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Chaminade University. You know, today, some of our healthcare heroes are marking the pandemic's second anniversary. There's a private gathering planned today at Kaiser Moanua Medical Center. Dr. Tarkin Collis is the chief of infectious disease there. He shared that it was at Kaiser Permanente that the very first COVID cases in the state were diagnosed. Reflecting on this difficult time and lessons learned hasn't been easy. Here's Dr. Collis. Looking forward, it's really hard to do because there are so many different vectors and, and possibilities, and we're clearly in a lull, and whether that's a, a short-term lull or one that lasts months or one that really stretches forward and the worst is really largely behind us, I think is a, is a fool's errand to guess. So much depends on the virus's evolution on the one hand and how our own immunity as an individual and, and as a sort of population basis holds up against future viral variants. And then the last sort of variable is how treatment and vaccines evolve, too, are, is going to have a lot of impact as to what the future looks like. And I think all of those three things are tricky <laughs> to guess. We haven't done a really good job of guessing what, what's coming around the corner. I think we've declared the vampire dead a couple of times only to see it rise up again. So I think we've all learned to keep our mind open to the possibility that things aren't just done as much as we would like them to be. And that's an important thing. We were all kind of shaken to the core, and I just remember being so scared at the start of the pandemic because of the unknown, how quickly it could spread and, and what we were seeing happen, you know, in that first uh, cruise ship, right? <laughs> the first yep. Petri dish. dish. And so, yeah, you, you don't want to repeat the same mistakes. You know, we've got to reset. But like you said, we've got to chart a course for the for the next coronavirus or, or, or the next pandemic. 
Yeah, I guess the question I get asked a lot and that we all would love the answer to is what does endemicity mean for this virus? What does the endemic state mean for this virus? And and I think that's kind of the million dollar question. You see a lot of countries around the world sort of declaring that we've moved into an, an endemic state, but I think the clarity of what an endemic state means for coronavirus and, and whether we're really there yet is really unclear. I mean, I think from a pure epi standpoint, endemicity really just means that a, a pathogen is sort of persisting in the community or population, depending on how you look at that. But the reality in infectious diseases is that you know, endemicity looks really different from pathogen to pathogen. You have things like flu and RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which typically you know come around during the winter and, and cause substantial morbidity and mortality. 10 to 50,000 folks usually die in the U.S. every year from flu. And then you have other endemic viruses like, you know, rhinovirus, which really just circulates year-round at low levels as a cold. And then you have things in between like para-influenza, which has sporadic outbreaks that we can't predict. So where SARS-CoV-2 really falls in that in that spectrum and, and, and when we get there, I think, is something that we're all sort of watching for. And, and we don't really know what frequency of future outbreaks will be and, and how severe they will be. And those are sort of the two big hallmarks we're watching for. And, and there's a lot of things that that affect those two, you know, frequency and severity, a lot of them having to do with the evolution of the virus itself and and then how our own immune system holds up to future variants. And that is, <laughs> so far there are some, you know, some good signs uh, in terms of our immunity sort of carrying over from one to the next variant in terms of protecting us from severe disease, but we've also seen with Omicron, immunity won't always protect you from infection from new variants. And we've seen a lot of breakthrough infections, obviously, in this last wave that's taught us a lot about sort of humility, I think, in the face of vaccines and prior infections. So many more questions and answers, I think, at this point, but those are the things that we're really watching for. What does endemicity look like in terms of frequency and severity of future outbreaks, and, and where does this virus fall in terms of our own ability to protect ourselves against severe disease, even if we can't protect against reinfection? Answer this for me. For those of us who know people who uh, just don't want to get vaccinated, is there a chance that, you know, Delta is still lurking out there and the original coronavirus is still out there? Yeah. I mean, I think that what we're really watching for in the next couple of months is how does Omicron and, it, you know, it's sort of subvariance within within that space of the Omicron umbrella, how does it compete? in the next couple of months with prior variants, including Delta, in terms of sort of head-to-head competition. And that's a story that's yet to be told. So I think there certainly is, a, is the possibility that Delta or other variants could rise again, or that they could be co-circulating. You know, there are several types of viruses that we deal with in which you have different variants that sort of share space and co-circulate all at once. And then there's the possibility of totally new variants, right? Because it's a virus that continues to evolve and there's a large population still to infect or reinfect, and that allows for viral evolution. So, yeah, you know, it's not always that, that one variant gets out sprinted in the race and then never appears again. Sometimes they do come up again, and that's one of the things we'll be watching for at the population sort of whole genome sequencing level. And just on the clinical side, just from what you've seen there, you know, at, at mm-hmm. Kaiser, gosh, I mean, if you had to do it all again, what will we change? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I think back, it was two years almost to the day earlier this week that we diagnosed the first two cases in the state at Kaiser back in March of 2020. And there were the two extremes. I look back now and I think, gosh, they were pretty indicative of what was to come because one was the patient who had a very mild case connected to the Princess Cruise Line, of all things, who just ended up here. And the other was an elderly patient who, in two years of doing COVID care, was probably one of the five sickest patients I've ever seen with COVID. And, and, and he was the first one that came in the door as an inpatient. And I think about him a lot because um, we didn't save him. You know, we worked hard for three weeks and, and we lost him. And I know now, I know very well that if I had the tools and the knowledge that we have now, back then, I think there's an excellent chance he'd still be with us. And, and I, 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 I'll never forget that. You know, I still regret that. We lost a lot of people 
before we understood what the virus was all about. And a lot of our assumptions as to how best to treat this infection proved, proved wrong, actually. And we needed hard science. We needed really careful, careful, careful science and prospective studies to teach us the things that we need to do right and the importance of those studies became more and more clear over the last couple of years. So, yeah, <laughs> I would do a lot of things over again in terms of our collective understanding of what to do, but I think the reality is, you know, we've been building this airplane as we're flying it for over two years now and just learning as we go. I think one of the really fundamental understandings we've come to is how crucial it is to follow. You know, following the science has become kind of a mantra, but the reality is I think we really do need to understand with careful clinical trials what works and what doesn't, and don't assume that we know that answer beforehand. I think there's such a desperate part of medicine where we want to do things to help. We're trained to do that. We want to help. But sometimes doing things is more harmful than not doing things. And we've learned that the hard way with this, as we have with HIV and lots of other pandemics. Of those first two patients that were diagnosed in the state there at Kaiser, uh, did they survive? Uh, one did great and had an easy time of it and, and, and walked away and was never hospitalized, and the other died. And we are still dealing with questions about long COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we're dealing with many more questions than answers about long COVID, and, and I think that's going to take, that'll be its own sort of, you know, mini or not so mini epidemic, I think, in, in the next couple of years as, as we come to a broader understanding of what exactly long COVID is. I think it's, a, it's an umbrella term right now that is being intensively studied at the NIH and international level, but we still don't even have a working definition of exactly what constitutes long COVID? Like, how long do you have to feel ill after COVID to even constitute a case of long COVID? There's a lot of really fascinating work in that space. It's interaction with Epstein-Barr virus and, and, and other viruses, potentially it's interaction with our own immune system and our blood supply at the microvascular level. I think we're going to find out immense amounts in coming years that we don't understand now about long COVID. We're certainly seeing a lot of these patients in different forms within our own medical system, and I think we're all sort of many different specialties, neurology, cardiology, pulmonary, infectious disease, rheumatology. We're all sort of feeling different parts of the elephant and trying to piece together the puzzle of what, what is long COVID. But it's very real, and it's not always easily measurable either, and it's something we're just going to have to learn over time how best to help these folks because there are some really, really struggling people out there. And, you know, I just worry, too, for the children for those who are too young to get a vaccine, to get protected. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the next variant, you know, you know, could seek them out. Yeah, I think we're not so far away from the approval of the six-month to five-year group for, for vaccines, and that'll be great. I think that'll be really helpful. I think we do, you know, COVID has a, a sort of overarching reputation as being relatively mild in children, and I think that's... Um, that is the case, but we've also lost, you know, 800 or so um, children uh, in the U.S. to the pandemic, and each one of those is a tremendous tragedy, obviously. So, so yeah, I, I, I worry about the kids, too, uh, intensely so, and I hope we can help bring them to safety soon with, with some really good vaccine options, and I think we will get there, actually, and we'll see where we go, but, but I can't wait to help bring them to safety. And then is there anything that Kaiser is doing just to mark this point in time? Yeah, I was just talking with one of the one of the clinicians here who's helping organize um, a get together out on the lawn in front of Kaiser, kind of a, um, a healing time for the staff to come out and and share some stories and and uh, we're putting some some paper butterflies on a on a bamboo statue that's being erected temporarily in, in the lawn of, in front of the hospital. And I look forward to that, actually. I think a lot of us have been talking privately and, and remembering so many things in the last couple of years. It's been a pretty intense time to be in healthcare, obviously. And there has been concerns about burnout within the medical field and within lots of other fields, you know, teachers, etc. But I think there's also been a real esprit de corps, I think a real camaraderie of, of sort of a band of brothers, those of us that have really spent a lot of time in the trenches, we've become a lot closer over time, and I'm very grateful actually for a lot of those relationships and how they've changed over the years. Yeah, um, we just and, appreciate uh, yeah, each so other more. That's, yeah, that's important. Yeah. I think we appreciate each other a lot, and I've seen a lot of bravery in the last two years. I can't tell you how many people I've seen 
run into the burning house rather than away from it. And I really, really admire a lot of the people I work with immensely. That was Dr. Tarkin Collis, Infectious Disease Chief at Kaiser Permanente, applauding the efforts of healthcare workers as we mark the second anniversary that the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. The declaration of a pandemic uh, triggered a massive shutdown of our economy. And starting next week, the National Guard will stand down after stepping up to help the counties in the state with this health emergency. We talked to Brigadier General Moses Coe Evie Jr. about what the pandemic taught us about planning. Right now, we're at about 300 personnel, give or take a few uh, numbers, and uh, based off of leave and all that uh, other things, and people going off, and, and we're still uh, out there doing a lot of contact tracing and some of the testing, but we're about to stand down next week. What the public can expect is, one, not to see a guardsman out there after um, the 15th. The services that we've provided and assisted with the COVID-19 testing as well as the uh, contact tracing and some other things that the counties needed us to do, even the, the security at the Department of Labor and industrial relations. You're not going to see that anymore. And uh, everything should be going back to counties and the state agencies that normally would do some of these duties and responsibilities. Were you tasked with doing a lot of inputting? You know, because I know it was a real challenge as we had the spike of cases oh, yeah. so, in December. So part of um, the duties that we ended up taking on, especially with the contact tracing, was entering the data into the systems. And then with the vaccinations, as vaccinations during COVID-19 started to come out and the, the need to put the data into the VAMP system across, especially the federal health care qualifying facilities, we ended up assisting them with the vaccinations as well as with the inputting into the VAMP system. So a lot of the data input came with the vaccinations or the COVID-19 testing that so we expected to do that uh, once we figured that out back uh, in 2020 has the need for the services arose and the, the need to get uh, more uh, bodies out there to help with these things. Data input was a big part of it. Well, I'm sure, you know, you're trying to get the state and the counties weaned off of your support because once the order drops away, then they're just going to have to to handle it on their own. We've had a good transition with the counties in this, this past month, but the interesting thing about the COVID-19 pandemic, we started off back in 2020 with a set amount of time thinking that, okay, we'll, we'll do the initial three months of support. And then, of course, three months turned into six months, then, then it came into the whole year. But in each time, in each point where it seemed like we were going to end, we've we've had a system in place to discuss the, the mission sets and how it was going to downsize with the counties, specifically with the emergency management agencies across the counties, and then also with the Department of Health. So fortunately, however, based off of the, the, the funding available and still because of the presidential declaration that, that was out there, we were able to continue our missions with the counties and state. And uh, the biggest one, I think, when we thought we were going to end was in December. And then when the Omicron spike hit, we all came back on board. But uh, we already did a, a small transition in December with the counties, giving them a lot of the responsibilities back. At that point, we had approximately 500 personnel on board assisting. And then in January, we came back. But we came back with only about 300. So it was 200 less. So it wasn't like it was a, an abrupt stop. And while we went back into the main duties that required a lot of the data input, like, like you mentioned, and then uh, with the vaccination, inoculations, the testing, it kind of, I guess, had a, had a better effect of preparing the counties of what they had to take on slowly. And in this case, since we're uh, going off 100%, we believe that the counties are, are pretty much prepared. Our, our personnel has uh, worked with uh, the agencies. Some of the uh, agencies, through their own funding have asked some of our um, guardsmen to come on board and be employees for a certain amount of time to carry on some of these duties. I have to ask you about the vaccination mandates because I know I think the guard had theirs pushed out I think was it the summer but where are we at with that because uh, uh, my understanding was that uh, probably a higher average of compliance here than maybe on the mainland. Yeah so we're we're above the 95 percent as far as our, our personnel vaccinated with the full series 
Um, and then we have a few with the um, request to waive the, or the exemption, I should say, based off of religious and medical reasons. And that's going to the process right now and being submitted. I haven't uh, gotten anything back yet concerning um, was uh, approved or not approved. It's, it's beyond the state. Some of them are still coming in. But as long as we have an, an exemption that's being reviewed, we're pretty good. What can you say about planning for the next pandemic? Well, we learned a lot. While we, we had, for the past years, before the pandemic, understood that, hey, there may be a pandemic based off of today's world, we didn't necessarily anticipate some of the responses that was needed. When we got on board, we, we understand, like for us in the Guard, the traditional support that is almost request, uh, always requested is security or some type of con- traffic control or or presence to, to assist in facilitating like food distribution. And so some of those things we expected that we would do and, and, we, and we did. But when the counties and the state needed to execute some tasks, such as the first, the, the thermal screening was, was the one that, that we learned that, that was, okay, this is something new. And then uh, looking at the, the potential for COVID-19 testing and then with the swabs and then going into the fit testing of the masks. And that was another one. And then anticipating uh, the potential for um, vaccinations and inoculations of testing the, the state and the counties in that. And so when COVID in the first month started to, to occur, myself and, and Colonel James Barrows, my chief of staff at the time, knew that hey, we have to get a big medical presence, something that we've never done before. So we stood up the medical task force with as many do- many doctors, nurses, and, and medics who were not already involved on the civilian side with responding to COVID, we brought them in and we started setting them up for the potential needs that the state uh, looked like as you watch the news, it was gonna have to have extra personnel or extra capability. So we, we started that, which was never done before. So the lessons learned on that was pretty quick because we're trained to organize, we're trained to, uh, to assess. It wasn't that difficult, but you know, it, it still took some time to get us going. And then as we were ready and we were prepared, we actually were waiting for um, the Department of Health and do an official request for us, especially with the contact tracing. Anything else that, that you think, just as you prepare to stand down and, and look for the next call up <laughs> of our men and women. Anything special about our our troops here compared to the mainland? So Hawaii has to rely a lot on ourselves. I mean, we, we cannot just have another state come in and nobody can drive into Hawaii to beef us up. So the, the best thing for us is that uh, we, we maintain our guard strength in hopes that maybe we can, we can increase our guard strength. But the skill sets, I mean, our people, the local mentality that they have, I mean, like I mentioned before, I mean, we, we come from the community where the, the sons and daughters of Hawaii, we're somebody's aunt, uncle, we're somebody's employer. So our interaction and an ability to understand the culture is real important. So when we go into some place like a healthcare facility, it's not some foreign person coming in, somebody out of state coming in, it's us coming in. So I think that's where our strength is. And if we can maintain the guard strength here in Hawaii, we'll always be ready to assist the counties and the state in, in whatever need they, they have. And, and our people, we're real good at adapting. We've shown it in the past where we can adapt from tasks needed for a hurricane, lava flow, or um, flooding, and, and now in this case, case the pandemic. We, we've been able to adjust to the needs of the county and the state. So I, I'm confident that we're going to be able to do it again. We just need to ensure that we have the, the trained personnel and, the, and the, the bodies necessary to execute what's needed in the future. Well, we thank you for all that you did during the the pandemic. Uh, we appreciated uh, the men and women out there throughout the state, and we thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for allowing me to, to participate in this interview. And that was Brigadier General Moses Coevey Jr. talking about the stand-down of the National Guard troops next Tuesday as the pandemic moves into another phase. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org.
On the next Fresh Air, our interview with Patrick Stewart. Season two of Star Trek Picard has begun, in which he plays the role he's most famous for, Jean-Luc Picard. He played Picard in several Star Trek films and seven seasons of The Next Generation. Before that, he was a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. Our community is breathing a collective sigh of relief as it seems we may finally turn a corner on how we live with the pandemic. But that returning sense of normality may feel out of reach for those who are grappling with long COVID. A new national study is seeking answers for those individuals. The Recover Project, run by the National Institutes of Health, will work with over 17,000 individuals over the next four years to investigate what factors led to someone developing long COVID and what treatments may be effective. Dr. Cecilia Shikuma and nurse practitioner Chris Milney are with the Hawaii Center for AIDS, which is affiliated with the University of Hawaii Medical School. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with them about their experience working with long COVID patients. Long COVID seems to have had the same punchline since the start of the pandemic. We know it happens. We know we suspect it happens quite often and we don't know why. Is there anything concrete that we've learned about long COVID in relation to different variants, in relationship, in relation to different risk factors, or in relation to vaccines that we're confident about at this point? There has not been really defined concrete objective evidence for anything. We don't know whether uh, variants differ in their risks. There has been articles uh, that suggest that people with certain chronic illnesses like diabetes and asthma may be at increased risk. But I think uh, more definitive data needs to be presented before you know we can really define them as uh, objective data. Hmm. And Chris, maybe I can have you jump in and start us off on this question. This is a national study with over 17,000 participants trying to get people answers, both about what causes long COVID as well as what treatments we can provide. Bringing it just back down to our community in Hawaii, do we have any understanding of what our residents are facing in terms of long COVID? Is it something that's reported often here? That's one of the things that the study is going to be trying to find out. How frequent are people having long COVID? This study is going to be recruiting both people who haven't experiencing long COVID and people who've had COVID and are not experiencing long COVID and people who've never had COVID tests uh, positive at all. And the reason why is so we can compare the our population here, specifically in Hawaii, so we can see how prevalent it actually is. What struck me quite a bit is the symptoms that people are reporting are actually very life-changing and devastating for them. It breaks my heart to listen to some of these folks tell their story about how they were very productive up until they had COVID uh, one year ago, and now they're so fatigued they still can't get out of bed. They have horrible headaches every day. It's a definite issue that we need to look at more thoroughly, and that's why we're excited about participating in this um, Recover Research Program. Dr. Shikuma, anything to add about your experience as a clinician when people come forward and they say, I think I have long COVID? Well, you know, it varies depending on what kind of symptoms they have. If you're short of breath, for example, it's fairly easy to get objective data that, you know, their oxygenation is not what it should be, for example. But uh, as Chris points out, you know, one of the major problems is that a lot of the symptoms are very vague, like, you know, fatigue, debilitating fatigue, um, having headaches, uh, having a lot of anxiety or depressive symptoms. And it's very hard to get to uh, objective data 
uh, but I'm uh, really convinced from a lot of the, the investigations that have been done to date that these are very, very real. So that, you know, these symptoms are really not in someone's mind, for example. Uh, you know, they aren't necessarily psychological problems. They're real problems caused by something that we don't quite understand yet. And I just want to clarify that. You're talking not just about physical symptoms, but psychological symptoms that we suspect may be the result of a COVID-19 infection. That's correct. Yeah. It's real important also that we really validate these people's experiences. Um, I feel very bad for them when they've been um, searching for answers through our medical establishment and they've gone to all these different doctors and then at the end they say you need to see a psychiatrist or something because it's, you know, it's in your head. And I think that that's... um, People, what I'm hearing when I talk with folks is the frustration that they feel of not being able to at least be validated. Even though we don't have a lot of treatments right now, the good thing about this study is it will be that, yes, we're going to be validating what you're experiencing and saying, yes, what you're, you're, you know, what you're experiencing is real. Given how amorphous this diagnosis is, it can touch so many different aspects of health, and it seems like it can manifest, really, in any part of your mental or physical health. Do you find that people are coming forward confidently saying, I got COVID, these are the symptoms that I continue to have, I believe I am experiencing long COVID, and the medical professional is catching up? Or are we seeing people who are coming in and saying, I don't really know what's going on, I used to be able to run five miles, now it's difficult for me to walk a mile in the evening, or I've been experiencing these episodes of depression that are new for me. And then clinicians are asking, well, if you have contracted COVID, it's possible that those things are related. What's the order of operations here? You know, I think that uh, we get all uh, variations along that line. Some people will tell you, I was fine, I got COVID, developed these symptoms ever since then, and I know it's due to COVID. But other people are not so clear. You know, they may have had symptoms that they uh, think they may have had before uh, COVID, but have gotten worse. And to make, to complicate things, you know, it's possible to get COVID infection that are so mild or really with no symptoms that they don't even know they had COVID. And we know in terms of uh, long COVID that it doesn't just impact people who were hospitalized and had severe COVID, for example. Uh, it can happen to people with very, very mild uh, disease and presumably uh, possibly in individuals who really did not suffer any kind of acute symptoms but were infected. It's just such a tricky problem to tackle. And I'm wondering, you know, when you go into see your doctor, there's a series of questions that they asked generally about your health. They asked, how many times per week do you consume alcohol? Are you a smoker? Do you know of any pre-existing conditions in your family? Do you think the question, have you had COVID, will become just one of those standardized questions that physicians ask when they're trying to assist patients? I think that would be a very good beginning, uh, particularly now when so many of our population have now had acute COVID. I think it's important for the participant to really, if they have some sort of a clear-cut idea that things are different after they got their acute illness, I think it'll be important for them to point that out to their primary physician. And it might even be a good idea. Uh, There are now post-COVID clinics that um, have been established. Um, We certainly know about the one at Queens, and there is one, uh, I believe, at Straub as well. And so that these specialized uh, clinics may be worth, um, you know, visiting and uh, having a consultation with uh, to try to clarify um, aspects of what they might be suffering. I also wanted to bring up the point of feeling like you're getting support. There's uh, online web sites that you can go to and support groups 
I have a friend who hasn't been able to smell since last January of 2021, and she said it was really affecting her life in a lot of ways, her ability to eat and her ability to cook. And she felt very alone, and then she was able to find an online support group, and she says it's been very, very helpful to her. Um, so there are resources out there that people can delve into and uh, get support for. Sometimes if we can't answer all the questions, at least being able to talk with other people who are in a similar situation with you, that you are in uh, can be beneficial to somebody. And that was Dr. Cecilia Shikuma and nurse practitioner Chris Milney. They spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about their recovery study on long COVID. We'll have links about how to join that research project on our website later today. For this newsy Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we talk to the EPA about cesspool conversions and the crackdown that's underway. Call us with feedback, 808-792-8217. Reach out to us on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to all of our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our producers are Savannah Harriman Poe, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. John DeMello provided our backyard quiz Oli, our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>